John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came and followed him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. She, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascended to my Father and your Father. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That statement, of course, is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. If you take it away, there's really nothing left at all. Jesus, over the course of his lifetime, conveyed some brilliant life strategies, and so maybe there's a little reason to hold on to his teachings or principles. But in the end, if the resurrection did not happen, then even following the things that he taught is pretty questionable. The Apostle Paul said it this way, If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless And so is your faith. Think about that. Your faith. Useless. A waste of time and effort and money. A waste of your energy. A waste of your life. A waste of our collective lives. How many of you are keenly aware of this? Life is short. Come to that place. All the younger kids are like, whoa. Older older people we know, right? Time is precious. You can always make more money. You can always build more buildings. You can always acquire more stuff, but you can never buy even one second of time back. And that's what Paul's words mean. If the resurrection didn't happen, 
then everything that we've done in this place and everything people have done in millions of places like this place, all the hours, think of all the days, the weeks, the years that people have put into this effort called Christianity. If there's no resurrection, wow, what a waste of time and life. And so we understand this, right? And so most of us are pretty good at steering clear of obvious time wasters. Uh, That email that you got isn't really from a Nigerian prince, right? That ad on Craigslist for a new car being offered for 500 bucks because somebody's shipping off overseas and needs to sell it today. Probably not, probably not, okay? No one wants to have their time wasted. No one wants to lose money. No one wants to be, we would put it this way, scammed. We don't want to be scammed. We want to do everything in our power to avoid it. And so when it comes to the resurrection... I mean, think about that. That's an overwhelmingly huge claim. Someone died, then came back to life. Really? Yeah, yeah, really. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's true. I mean, that's what I've been told. Isn't, isn't the grave empty? That's what I've read. But I guess I've read a lot of things, including emails from Nigerian princes. In the recent past, I have had two conversations, separate conversations, with older guys. They're full of life. They're full of experience. They're full of knowledge. They are well-read guys. They are well-educated. They've seen the world. They've been around. They're, they're the kind of person that I kind of want to be one day as far as gathered intelligence about this world that we live in. And these discussions that we had on two separate occasions, it was uncanny because both very quickly turned to the discussion of faith. I think both of them knew what I did, and they figured that I must have read the Bible at least a little, and each one asked me about faith. And so I did the best I could. I stumbled around as I held my weed eater there, you know. Uh, And after being all over the screen for a moment or two, I came back to this central point, the point that... Paul makes. I wanted them to know it's all about the resurrection. I wanted to make clear to each of them that Christianity succeeds or fails based on nothing else but the resurrection of Jesus. I told them you don't have to buy into anything yet. You don't have to change your political affiliation. You don't have to change your social status. You don't have to change your lifestyle just yet. Just think about the resurrection. Read, research, study, think. Find the evidence for it or the lack of evidence for it. Because if you can conclude that it didn't happen, then, then live life and be merry. Be as merry as you can be in a meaningless existence, right? But if everything points to the reality that it did happen, man, that's a different story. That's a different story. In both conversations, as I got to that point, I turned the dialogue back over to them. And they both responded almost identically. It was weird the way it happened. And in their own words, they both essentially said this. Man, I wish I could get that kind of faith. I wish I had that kind of faith to believe in what Jesus did. It must be so reassuring to you and so hopeful to you that you have that kind of faith. I wish I could get that. And do you see what they're saying? In those statements, they're saying that having faith or not having faith is based on some cosmic roulette wheel. You see, in their eyes, I was the lucky winner. 
And so I got faith. And they were not. Their number didn't come up. And so they didn't get faith. In their opinion, the dice rolled the right way for me, but not for them. And they just wanted a couple more chances to see if they can finally roll a seven in this realm of faith, right? Maybe God will be kind to them this time and give them faith, and then they can believe. And those questions today led me to this question, and it should lead us to this question today. Why do we believe? Why on earth? Do we believe that some Middle Eastern guy walked out of a tomb three days after he was crucified by the Romans? Why do we believe that? Are we getting scammed? Are we wasting our time? Are we wasting our lives in this place? The text that was read just a moment ago was from John chapter 20, and it tells us that there's a woman named Mary who was at the tomb of Jesus early that first Sunday morning after the crucifixion. And when she arrived at the tomb, the the first thing she saw was that the stone that had been used to seal the tomb shut had been moved to the side so that the opening was visible. And she instantly thought, well, that's not right. And so she goes to get a couple of disciples of Jesus. She grabs Peter and she grabs what the text says the, is the other disciple, who is most surely John himself, who writes this very passage. And she frantically tells Peter and John that Jesus' body must have been taken somewhere because it's not in the tomb. So come help me figure out where they took him. And so John and Peter take off for the tomb as fast as they can. And apparently, John was a faster runner. I've always wondered why that little fact was in there. I mean, was that... John's way of jabbing Peter, and if so, he's been successful at it for about 2,000 years now. Ongoing joke, right? Regardless, John gets there first, and he looks into the tomb, but he doesn't go in, and Peter arrives, and in true Peter-like fashion, he doesn't wait. He just dives right into the tomb immediately without thought, and Peter uh, and John both saw something. What was it? Look at verse 5. John is looking from the outside of the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth that was lying there. Apparently, it's the same linen cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' body when they put him in the tomb. Look at verse 6. Peter goes into the tomb, and he sees the same thing, the linen cloths that were lying there. And then verse 7, we get this added detail that Peter is inside, and he sees that the face cloth that would have been covering Jesus' face and head was folded up and placed separately from the other cloths. Now, time out. We need to take a break right there before we go farther. And we need to just point out what a disaster this is. What an absolute tragedy. Think about it from Mary's view. Think about it from John's. Think about it from Peter's. The man they've been following for years now was beaten. He was killed. He was crucified on a cross in front of them three days ago. Because of that, they themselves ran for their very lives, fearing that they might be killed too, because that was a likely scenario. And now, three days later, they go to mourn at the tomb, and somebody has taken the body. I mean, haven't the enemies rubbed it in enough? And this is just another twist of the knife to some people who are wondering at this point, maybe maybe we've been duped. Maybe we've been scammed. All that effort, all that devotion lost, all that time lost. I left family for this. I left my occupation for a man who I thought would change the world, but he got cut down before he could. 
So the mission is over. And on top of that, they take his body. And now I don't even get the dignity of knowing he has a grave. What a cruel, cruel trick. See what a tragedy that is. But that first impulse of being cheated is quickly replaced by a rational thought. Peter and John take a step back. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's think. Let's think about what we're seeing here. Here are the clothes. There are, there are clothes here. If someone came and took the body, then, then that means they would have had to take the time to unwrap it. That doesn't make much sense. And look further. Look, look at the way the clothes are laid out. It's, it's as if somebody's making a presentation of them. There's neatness. There's an order. The face cloth is even folded. Now, I've heard of neat freaks who fold their laundry before they do the wash. But this, it's a little more overboard. Stealing a body, unwrapping it first, and then carefully placing the clothes so that they're nice and neat and presentable. Suddenly, somebody taking away the body looks pretty stupid and irrelevant. Something else is going on here. That's clear. And that first flash of mental processing is what I want us to latch on to this morning. Because of what they saw, Peter and John immediately started thinking. You see, faith doesn't come to us by way of chance. Faith grows in us by way of what we see and what we learn and what we experience. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, that faith comes by way of assurance. And that word, that word assurance has the sense of a deed or a title. How do you know that you really own the property that you think you own? If somebody were to challenge you on it, how do you know that you own the property? You can pull out the deed right here. They signed it over to me. I own it. And faith has assurance underneath it. And that assurance is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Peter and John are at the beginning stages of what will become great faith. Faith that Jesus was resurrected. Faith that they will take to their graves and that they will give the rest of their lives for. And this great faith begins with even the way the grave clothes are lying in the tomb. It will include much more, of course. John says in the next verse that he saw all of this in the tomb and believed. Now, it's very debatable about what they believed at this point. Because Jewish people in that day didn't believe in much of a resurrection. If it was believed in at all, it was believed in that a resurrection would happen, but it would happen at the end of time, and it would happen to all people at once. No Jew who believed, even those who believed in an eventual resurrection, no Jew would have believed in a resurrection for one person in the middle of time. That would have been unimaginable to Peter and John. Even though they heard Jesus say, I have to rise again, that hadn't helped. They hadn't put it together yet. And John says this in verse 9. He says, we didn't understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So what did they believe? Maybe they just believed, well, Mary's right. The body's gone. And so they go home. And they continue to think. And they continue to reason. And they continue to put pieces together. And just down the page from this, there's an account not long after this that Jesus did actually appear to his disciples. They're behind a locked door. He walks right through it. And even then, 
they tell Thomas because he wasn't there and he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe like the other disciples. Jesus has to come to Thomas personally before he believes. It takes Thomas physically touching the wounds of Jesus before he will put his trust in a resurrected Christ. See, faith isn't like a virus that you either get or don't get. Faith and belief and trust comes from evidence of putting your fingers in the wounds, in the hands, in the side of Jesus. And my question to you today is, how have you done that? Have you reasoned out your faith? Why do you believe that Jesus is raised from the dead? Christianity is a faith system that only stands if certain events are true. If they're not, it crumbles. C.S. Lewis said that for the early disciples to preach Christianity meant primarily that they preached the resurrection. Faith was the resurrection. And faith will not come to us without the assurance that the resurrection is true. What have you found that assures you that the empty tomb really happened. Part of the reason for this sermon today is to get you to go out and try to find that evidence because there's a lot of it. But can I give you just one thing, one piece of evidence that I kind of like? And it's even in this text, and that's the inclusion of doubt. The inclusion of doubt. We have a lot of doubters in our culture, rightly so, for many things. And let's say you're a doubter about something. What does it take for you to overcome your doubt? I'll tell you about me. About an eternity ago, I pulled out a phone, uh, one of those kind that flipped open, you know, from my pocket. And I saw this little text bubble come up. And I thought, why didn't they just call? I thought, that'll never catch on. Right? What did it take for me to overcome my doubt? Lots of evidence. Lots of evidence. People in these stories are just like us. They have doubts. Sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking because we're newer people and they're older people historically that somehow we're smarter than they are. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. Right? These people are just like us. And these people doubt. They see him. They hear him. They talk with Jesus. They touch him. And still, they have doubts. And the first thing is that that's something you would never write about, right? That's not how the post-game interview goes. The ESPN interviewer is there with the star of the game. And she says, great win. What was the clubhouse atmosphere like before the big game tonight? Well, to be honest... Hannah, we had a lot of doubters in the room. Have you ever heard that? No, you don't hear that. No, we knew we could win, right? These are the cornerstones of the movement, Peter and James and John and all the rest of the disciples, and they weren't all on board with the resurrection. It took them a while, and there's no way that you write that unless it was the truth. Second, they doubted because that's a normal thing to do. Peter and John look into the tomb and their first thought is, hey, wait a a second. And they begin to think through the possible reasons for what is in front of them. And it's doubt that drives that thinking. Doubt is a good thing. Why were they doubting? Because they had ingrained Jewish beliefs about any resurrection and when it would take place and how it would take place. And right now, for one guy, there's no way that'll happen. And their doubt 
forced them to think. And so for them, for us, what kind of evidences will overtake those kind of doubts? What will those first disciples need to see? What will they need to hear? What will they need to witness and observe to overcome those doubts? And the answer is strong, solid, without question, the kind of evidence that leaves no room for doubt. That's what they need, and that's what they got. Have you ever wondered why Jesus hung around in his resurrection state for 40 days? 40 days. In part, we get the answer in Acts chapter 1. Luke tells us that Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was resurrected. The kicker is who he has to give those proofs to. It's not unbelieving people who don't know him. It's his very disciples. James, John, and the rest. It took 40 days of evidence for even his disciples to fully believe in him. And it might take longer for you. That's okay. Read, study, think. Be assured in your own mind that the resurrection is true. Because hear me, you're wasting your time if it's not. The resurrection is rational, but at the same time, it's a very personal thing. We say that, see that in this text, and, and that makes everything in life matter. It matters. If we were forced to remain in the rational realm, it, then this would just be like a sterile science project. You know, mix these two liquids together, watch the reaction, make notes for the test, ask what's for lunch, you know. But that's not where this ends. There are rational reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but it's the personal nature of it that makes a difference in how I live even today. And I want you to go to verse 11. Verse 11. Mary stays at the tomb after Peter and John have left, and she's weeping. That's a very understandable thing. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Mary for just a moment. If the cross wasn't enough pain and anguish to watch, now his enemies have taken his body so we can't even mourn properly. Mary cannot even mourn properly because she doesn't know where Jesus is. She is lost. She's weeping because Jesus is gone. And it's pretty easy, isn't it? To put yourself in Mary's shoes and weep alongside Mary with any number of things that happen to us in life. Because sometimes we get lost. Sometimes... We don't know what to do either because Jesus seems like he's absent, like he's gone. In verse 12, Mary gets the courage to look into the tomb. And when she looks in, she gets a surprise because there are two angels there. Wait wait a minute, where did they come from? They weren't there before. One man said it this way. I I love this thought. He said, Mary's weeping. Maybe, Maybe you only see angels through tears. That's an interesting thought. When angels show up in the Bible, they usually tell people not to be afraid or they ask what's wrong. I'm pretty sure that those two things are clearly written in the handbook that's given to every angel. When you see a human, say, don't be afraid or ask what's wrong. Here, they ask what's wrong. And Mary answers very honestly. She says, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. I want you to keep standing in those shoes. Her very foundation, her security, her heart, her purpose has suddenly been ripped from her. What's been taken away from you? What's been taken away from us? My job, my home, 
My spouse has been taken away from me. My kids, my church, my rights, my dignity, my health, my hopes, my life has been ripped from me. And in Mary's grief, we, we see our own. And in this grief, Mary sees a figure. She assumes and guesses who it might be. Surely this is a gardener. And he's just minding the burial grounds, right? Maybe this gardener has taken Jesus' body, or at least maybe he saw what happened. I mean, look, I'm at my wit's end here. If you moved his body, tell me where he is. I mean, you're the gardener in charge. Surely you saw something, right? And at one level, Mary is so wrong. This isn't the gardener she's talking to. I mean, we know who she's talking to. She's talking to Jesus. This isn't some random guy with hedge clippers. But on another level, wow, Mary could not be more right. This is a gardener. He is the gardener. And what's happening at this very moment is the new creation. Jesus is at the beginning of the perfectly pruned and manicured life to come. He is the new man. He is the new Adam, charged with bringing the broken, chaotic world into new order, into flower, into fruitfulness. And he is the gardener who comes to uproot the thorns and the thistles and replace them with blooms and harvests in your life. What is it that they've taken from you? Part of the message of Easter is that the resurrected gardener is here to give it back. That's good news. Jesus the gardener simply says, Mary. Say that with me, I'll just nod. Mary. We'll try it again. Mary. That's all he has to say. Mary, what would you say if someone close to you didn't recognize you? I'll tell you what you'd say. You'd say, it's me. Yeah, it's, it's me. I mean, I have a beard now, but it's me, right? Why didn't Jesus say that here? It's me. I mean, my clothes are back there, but it's me, right? Because this was personal. The angels, did you note, know, called her woman. They didn't have a relationship with Mary. They didn't even have the authority to unveil the Christ to her. They're leaving that to the master gardener himself. Even Jesus himself calls her woman, and she mistakes him for the gardener. And it's not until he uses the most beautiful word in all of language that she recognizes him. What's the most beautiful word in all of language? You know it instinctively, even if you can't answer that question. The most beautiful word in all of language is your name. That's what Jesus uses. All he has to do is say, Mary. And she sees Jesus. She recognizes who is in front of her. The resurrection is rational. There are reasons to believe. But even more impactful to us is this idea that it is intensely personal. There are more signs of it in verse 17. If you skip down, Jesus tells Mary to go and tell the others that he's alive. And look what he calls them. Always before, he's called his his disciples followers or friends or disciples. But what are they to Jesus now in verse 17? What is the term? Brothers. He calls God my father, but is quick to also say your father. God is my God, but because of what I've done... He is your God. 
the new world that this gardener creates for us is where we get to know God in the very same way that Jesus knows God. That's astounding. We get to be kids who have a good, good father, and that father just happens to be God himself. What we're really after in this life is meaning. Meaning. And we attempt to find it a lot of different ways. Through work, through having a family, through becoming a certain kind of person. And those are all great. Those are all noble pursuits. But if life does what it always does and it ends and there's nothing more. If we just rot in the ground like an old tree stump and we're no more. And if this world, years and years from now, does what everyone thinks it might and it heats up to the point where life is no longer possible here so that there is nothing, what then? Here's what it will mean. That our careers that are so pressing to us right now, our loves, our families, our friendships, which are so important to us right now, the kind of things we're chasing after, the projects we're so deeply into right now that mean so much right now, it will mean that they mean nothing. Nothing. Election winners and losers, World Series winners and losers, the fact that you made vice president or reached a certain level at your job, that you were in love with somebody, if this world burns up and that's all there is, then none of that matters. It will make no difference whatsoever. One man said it this way, we're just the echo that dies out in the darkness. If there's no resurrection, then we are a waste of time in the biggest scam of all. That's the real scam to be worried about. But if the Easter story is true, different story. If God raised Jesus from the dead, as reported in John 20, then we can believe, we can take hope in a God who says, I will also make a new heaven and a new earth. I will renew this life. I will restore it to its original intention. And all of a sudden, if that's true, then everything matters. Everything. N.T. Wright is spot on when he says, we're not just oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. We're not restoring a painting that's about to be thrown into a fire. No, the good we're doing because of the resurrection matters greatly. You see, if the resurrection really happened, If God will one day renew this earth, then every prayer, every act of love, every kindness, every minute of teaching a child to walk or to read, every minute of sitting with a lonely person, every work of art, every piece of inspired music by the love of God, every act of care from the earth will somehow find its way into the new creation that God will one day bring about. And the smallest acts of kindness that you do even today will become infinite. If the resurrection is true. And there's no waste of time here. There's no waste of a life here. Life isn't a scam. Because Jesus is alive. Somebody say amen. Can you believe that as I was typing this very sermon. I got a call. And there was a recording on the other end. It said something like this. Mr. Drake your number has been drawn. I was eligible for a complimentary stay at a Marriott hotel. Just press two. Good grief. I knew there would be a catch, right? 
I hung up on the recording before they could tell me what the catch was. There is no catch to the gospel. None at all. Jesus gave his life for you. Your sin and death was heaped on him at the cross. His reward for right living was transferred to you. He got death. We get life. And we have this hope that this great exchange has taken place because of the assurance of the resurrection. And today, he's calling your name. Will you recognize who he is? Will you see Jesus, the resurrected Christ? And will you see a Savior who is worth following? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this great hope. Because of the resurrection, we, we have a life that means everything. Everything we do matters. I think about the words of Paul when he says, if the resurrection isn't true, then we of all men are to be pitied the most. Because wow, what a waste. What a waste of time. What a waste of a life. But Father, because because we can see the pieces and put them together, we know the resurrection is true. There might be somebody in the crowd today, Father, that is wrestling with the truth of the resurrection. Would you give them the evidence they need? Give them that assurance of faith. Help it to grow in them. Father, maybe some of us are on the other side. We, we kind of have a personal... We have a rational thought of the resurrection, but the personal side of it, I, I just can't see through what has been done to me in my life. I can't, I can't make it through all of the junk, all the tragedy that's happened to me. Father, would you call our name once again that we can follow the truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.